0: greetings and hello to everyone this is the business of betting podcast and i'm your host jake williams today is episode 21 and we have a very special guest victor haghani victor is very well known in the finance and investing world he started out at Solomon Brothers before moving on to places including John Merriweather and long term capital management. Currently, he is the founder and CEO of Alm Funds. Victor joins the podcast to chat about a myriad of topics, including his recent research paper and experiment titled Rational Decision Making Under Uncertainty. We discuss the results of the experiment with a biased coin 60% heads versus 40% tails and the optimal bankroll and money management techniques for betting, wagering, investing, and gambling. Is it possible to lose long-term when picking 60% winners? Can you bet too little or too much when the outcome is 60-40 in your favor? We discuss this and more. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Victor Haghani. Today it's a great pleasure to have Victor Haghani joining the show. Victor, thank you very much for your time.
1: Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Good speaking with you, Jake.
0: Victor, normally we have professional betters or you know, we've had sports betting hedge fund CEOs come on. Those with a bookmaking past, those who've worked in, you know, large syndicates and, and others, today is a bit of a a different tact for me, and certainly a great pleasure to have someone of your caliber and an investment expert and involved more in the stock market side of things. So, you know, why don't you start by just giving a little bit about your background for those who are unaware?
1: Okay, well, um, I uh, I started off um, working at Solomon Brothers in the uh, in sort of the heyday of of deregulation and and uh, financial innovation back in uh 1984 was when I started and my career just went alongside some some really great colleagues that uh that taught me and brought me along and eventually I became a founding partner of LTCM and uh stayed there through the end and and into uh a short while into the successor operation with John Merriweather and uh and a bunch of Friends and, and, uh, and colleagues. And I took a break, and about uh, six years ago, I decided to start a business that would help people to invest in ETFs and index funds, kind of putting portfolios together of ETFs and index funds in a sensible way, uh, an approach we call active index investing. We charge uh, relatively low fees and try to give people an efficient tax efficient risk efficient cost efficient exposure to markets so so that's my background in in a nutshell I love um, doing financial research and uh, and learning and exploring and it's it's been a great journey that continues
0: so the reason I came across you was not because I was looking to invest and it wasn't because I was interested in you know, trading stocks or understanding some of those aspects. I saw your paper last year called Rational Decision-Making Under Uncertainty, Observe Betting Patterns of a Bias Coin. And I read through that and it was entirely fascinating for me to understand the experiment, what you conducted, and go through some of the findings that you had and, and how that applies to whether it is sports betting whether it is horse racing whether it's just you know betting and investing in general and I guess even if you could have this scenario with casino games and things like that there's a million permutations going through my mind so I want to spend the the bulk of our time going over that and, and some of the insights and I guess learnings that we can garner from your research and the time you spent so why don't you for those who haven't read the paper and I'll certainly put a link to the paper and I urge everyone who's listening to this who's interested in in the business of betting to read the paper. It's it's not incredibly long, but it's it's very valuable insights to some of the, I guess, human elements of, of betting and, and money management. What was the experiment about? Well,
1: um, the, uh, the experiment which uh, I did with um, my research colleague, uh, Rich Dewey, was to explore how people would wager on a coin uh, that we told them was biased uh, to come up 60% Uh, probability of coming up heads. And we gave people, we actually gave people uh, real money and told them that we were going to pay them off if they won however much they won up to some maximum and that we would tell them what the maximum was if they got uh, close to it. So we gave uh, subjects, we had 61, ultimately I think we had 61 subjects that, that participated in the experiment uh, they were generally young, quantitatively trained people. A number of them were students, but we also had about 20 percent or a little bit more were uh, professional uh, investors. And we gave each one of them a twenty-five dollar stake and allowed them to bet however much they wanted, however much they had or, or, or fractions thereof, um, on this biased coin that was set up online for them to play. And, uh, and we, we set the cap at $250. So if they won, if they turned that $25 into, uh, up to $250, we would pay them out the $250 and, uh, they would find out about that cap, as I said, if they got close to it. So that was the experiment. And, uh, we asked the participants not to confer with each other. That wasn't always, uh, enforced well enough. But, but that was the basic experiment was to see how people would, uh, would bet. Would they always bet on heads? Was you know, We didn't even really wonder about that. We assumed that everybody would just keep on betting on heads. We were more uh, sort of wondering how much they would bet, whether they had heard of the Kelly criterion and things like that. Um, but the results were somewhat surprising to us.
0: So what about timing? Did they have unlimited time to try and reach the cap, or what did you say to them when they got there about how long? And Yeah, so they had
1: 30 minutes that we gave them to play uh, – yeah, 30 minutes, and we set up the coin. The coin on the computer flipped at, at such a pace that that if you played fast, you could you could get in 300 flips of the coin. That's that's that that number I'm sure of. So we had a number of participants who did actually manage to flip the coin 300 times, but we didn't we didn't set it up so that you could flip it a thousand or two thousand times. So there was a bit of a delay once you made your bed and pressed flip. it it flipped for about five or six seconds, and the result of that is that, you know, you could get about that many bets down if you played uh, efficiently.
0: So the reason it was of such great interest, and I sort of touched on a little bit before, was that hitting 60% sort of for a sports betting professional is, it's certainly not likely, it's not common, but it's not impossible. The break-even in general for sports betting is around 52.5% when you... Factor in the bookmakers' percentage or the takeout or the the vigorous. but it's like I said, it's not impossible for someone to hit sixty percent. There's a very large NFL handicapping competition in Las Vegas every year called uh, the Super Contest at the Las Vegas Hilton. I think last year there was almost two thousand people entered, and the winner went about sixty-five or sixty-six percent over that season. Um, I think there was about a bit over eighty games, so. That sort of show. And I th- there were a lot of participants in that competition that went around 60% or even above or a bit below. So that's sort of where it piqued my interest. And I was sort of thinking about well, there's not many situations in my life where anyone's going to come up to me and say, you know, here's a coin. It's 60% heads likely and 40% tails likely. Go for it for 30 minutes and you can start with $25 and see where you end up. So I guess I was trying to think about it from a sports betting perspective and I guess someone who has excellent handicapping skills or they have access to a brilliant tipster and then you give them these tips at going at 60% over a course of a period and to see what happened and I thought gee that would be unbelievable and I guess the some of the basic mathematics that's involved when it comes to having an edge of that level it sort of compounds pretty quickly over time if you you do the right thing so do you want to sort of, before we get stuck into what happened and I guess some of the results, do you want to sort of talk about the aim or the expectation of the experiment from your side? Did you have any going in?
1: Uh, well, really just to, just to learn and, and, and see. I mean, we suspected that there would be some suboptimal betting. Um, but we were just, you know, we you know, we, think we were really curious about, you know, what, what kind of strategies people would employ to, um, to how much they wagered. So we didn't we didn't have really firm expectations, or or if we did, it's hard to remember what they what they were because they got shaped by what ultimately happened.
0: And so, did you have any just regular people off the street come in, or were they all sort of relatively well educated? They were either in finance or looking to get into finance.
1: You know, actually, we had a, a number of quote unquote regular people, or or <laughs> I should say. Um, yeah, non non uh, quantitatively trained people do it also, but I, they tended not to be in our sample. Like I had my mom do it uh, when we were testing out the program to make sure it worked. Like we had a couple of receptionists from our office building come and do it, but we didn't put them into the sample, and they didn't uh, they didn't do you know they wouldn't have changed the uh, if we had put them in the sample they wouldn't have really changed the outcomes uh, either. So yeah, I mean I, it would be really uh, it would be great. To be able to do this with a much broader sample of people, I mean, the problem is that it's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. <laughs> you know, that uh, you know, even when people aren't doing a great job of it, it's like you're paying everybody a hundred. You know, you're paying a hundred dollars a person to sort of participate in this experiment. So you know, it's hard to make sense of you know, you know, if you're going to get a th- if you want a thousand people sample, you know, you're talking about a hundred thousand uh, dollars as the cost of what you're paying to people to to do it.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess if a casino accidentally came up with this scenario within one of their establishments, they probably wouldn't even pay you out or they'd find a way to, to avoid it. And I probably should have come up with a more apt description for uh, for people like me rather than just regular people. But anyway, <laughs> so what was the outcome of the experiments, the results and I guess the performance of those who, who took part?
1: Uh, you know, people, you know, in general didn't do very well. I mean... I don't know probably the the two most surprising things were that uh, there was a lot of betting on tails that went on so people kind of had this feeling this fallacy of control or that they could somehow predict when the tails would would come up and then uh, also just a lot of people went bust you know that I don't know like a, around a third of the people actually went went bust and more people went bust than hit the $250 uh, maximum so yeah it was it was surprising and you know that there was there was kind of very little proportional betting. I mean, you would kind of think that that people would kind of intuit, I should bet a proportion of my stake each time. But there was very little, I mean, it's hard to tell because, you know, people are playing fast. And so if somebody says, I'm just going to bet 10% of my stake every time, you know, it might be hard to observe that because they might not exactly bet 10% of their stake every time. And so it might look a little bit. You know, more jagged than that, but we tended to not see people really sticking with any particular percentage either. So yeah, it was it was it was kind of surprising. I mean, a lot of finance people, you know, nobody sort of had the Kelly rule in mind or anything like that. So it's like all these people trained in finance, and you know, none of them, you know, could you know that that they weren't led to uh, a simple proportional betting rule, and and they didn't have you know, any kind of uh, base, you know, they didn't have like a base to sort of start with, like what would be, you know, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't have something like Kelly um, just there to draw upon and say, well, you know, I'll just bet 20% or 15% of my stake each time and sort of see how it goes. So you know, it was, it was surprising like that. Um, you know, it was under pressure, you know, that people realized they didn't have a lot of time to think about what they were going to do before they because they were using their time, uh, their betting time, but still, uh, we were we were surprised by all that.
0: Yeah, that is it is unbelievable. If I said to you, I'm going to gather the five best sports bettors in the world, give you all of their tips, you know, over a season of English Premier League soccer, and they're going to hit about sixty percent because they're incredibly good at what they do, and then you told me at the end of the season you went bankrupt. That would be. Uh, hilarity would ensure that just seems incredibly difficult to do if, if that was the scenario. And essentially a third of, of the participants went bust. Is that as crazy as it seems, or do you think that that pressure and I guess the, you know, being put in that situation without too much time to think caused such an outcome or were there other factors at play?
1: Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that it's, you know, more explicable when you, you know, when you think about the circumstances, the, the pressure, the boredom, you know, the, you know, when you, you know, let's say you got down to a dollar, you might say, okay, I've got, I got a dollar and I really, you know, that I don't care if I lose the dollar, but, you know, I'm going to bet aggressively. So they would bet say 50 cents on one flip. And then it's like, all right, now I've just got 50 cents left. Oh geez, what am I going to do? You know, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll just bet the whole thing and then go, and then go bust. But, um, there was one, uh, I, I was having coffee with, uh, a guy who was a professional poker player, though, and um, and I just told him about the experiment and asked him what he would do. And his first reaction was, um, he said, "Oh, I would go for the highest expected gain. I would bet twenty-five dollars on each flip." And um, and I kind of looked at him, you know, like, <laughs> um, you know how you know how could you come to that? And I was really surprised. He I didn't have him play the I didn't have him participate in the experiment. It was just, you know, this anecdotal piece. But I think a lot of times people's first reaction is, I'm a risk taker, I'm gonna go for the highest expected gain approach to this thing because it's not a lot of money. And so you know I'm sure that I'm sure that this professional poker player you know, would 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 play poker. You know that in the context of his professional gambling, I'm sure that he would be very sensible about how he bet. But sort of placed into this other experiment, into this other context, he gave kind of a uh, you know a silly answer. Um, so I think it you know it takes a little while. So you know I think that any you know that any professional sports betters that are listening to this. You know, know exactly what they're doing and wouldn't, you know, would, would, uh, you know, in their, in their own betting. I'm sure that they're betting in a very sensible way, you know, with some sort of Kelly, modified Kelly rule, whatever. You know, but it's interesting that it's just how, how non-intuitive it is for people just thrown in to the situation and trying to figure out what to do. You know, even you know, even for your audience of professional uh, betters who are all, I'm sure, well aware of Kelly and that sort of thing, I think there's still a lot that's interesting here, and and in other related research that we've done as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, what was the Kelly number that came out when you did the math- When you did the mathematics behind it, what did Kelly say to bet? Was it a certain percentage of your bankroll, and, and what was that percentage? Yeah, yeah.
1: Kelly is uh, 20% in this case. You know, it's two p two p minus one, where p is the probability of winning so so 2 times 0.6 minus 1 is 20% so that's the kelly bet and you know there's reasons where where you might want to bet half of kelly or a third of kelly you know so you might want to bet 10% or you know depending on the circumstances i mean one of the so one of the interesting lines of research that came out of our note was people saying well what really is the you know presented with this game what's the optimal thing to do and and you need to take account of the fact that you have outside wealth that there's a cap on the game you know etc and so there was a lot of you know there were a number of research papers that other people wrote that were very interesting actually uh, you you probably know of Aaron Brown who wrote I think he wrote the book The Poker Face of Wall Street have you ever read his stuff or or talked to him on your on your podcast
0: I haven't spoken to him, but I'm aware of some of his work. yeah.
1: yeah, so he so he uh, wrote a paper that he put uh, that he published that that sort of uh, tried to solve this game in a more general way, you know taking account of its you know of its uh, you know specific boundaries and all of that. so so that's really interesting is sort of you know what do you do when you're faced with a nice opportunity but you know it's but you're not really going to put all of your wealth, you know, but you have outside wealth that you can't get into the game. And how do you play it under those circumstances? And that's a pretty interesting problem.
0: Yeah, certainly. So if Kelly says bet 20%, and a lot of my guests would say they might only have a quarter Kelly staking plan or a half Kelly. Some have even said they have you know, separate bankrolls where they do modified Kelly in one and straight Kelly in others and things like that. What do you think would be the optimal, I guess, percentage to bet if, if Kelly's 20%? Are you thinking it would be, I, mean, I think you mentioned 8% earlier, you think it would be around sort of 10% or something like that now that you've sort of seen it happen?
1: Well, if, if, I were, uh, if I were presented with this game today with all that I know and, you know, having had a lot of time to think about it, um, you know, the key aspect of this game is, um, the key aspect of, of being a subject in this experiment is realizing that there's going to be a cap on how much the, the person running the experiment, i.e. me, is going to pay you. So you sit down and it's like, okay, here's 25 bucks and I'm going to pay you as much as you win up to some maximum. The first thing the person should realize is, listen, you know, this guy is not coming in to uh, do this experiment. He's not going to pay me a million bucks if I turn the $25 into a million. You know, maybe he's going to pay me $100, $200, something like that. So knowing that there is a cap, really what I want to do is maximize the probability that I hit the cap. And to maximize the probability that I hit the cap, I would go with, and and assuming that the cap is down around $100, $200, $300, or $50 or whatever, you know, I should go with something like uh, half Kelly, you know, 10%. So if I were betting 10% of my bankroll on each uh, flip, then, you know, I get to like a 99% chance or a 98% chance of hitting the $250 max. Um, you know, whereas Kelly would give me the highest growth rate. So if I were betting Kelly, you know, my my expected amount of money that I'd have at the end would be like $3 million, but that's irrelevant because I know that I would never get paid out that. You know, I'm not trying to maximize my end value. I'm trying to maximize the probability of hitting the cap.
0: So what happens in this game without a cap? What is there an there's an expected value, right? There's a certain number that it would reach if you had, you know, the same amount of time, a certain amount of flips, the 60/40 split on the the coin and the percentages of heads coming up and tails coming up. What is that expected value of this game? Well,
1: so the the expected value if you went in and bet Kelly is about three million dollars um, uncapped. But you know, I think that most people, again, you know, I think that 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 the Kelly um, risk aversion log utility is is uh, less risk averse than most people actually are. So, you know, I would imagine that um, that most people, if you were playing, you know, most people that might play this game uncapped, you know, would be betting, uh, you know, going with something that was some fractional Kelly betting thing. You know, another question that we asked was, you know, how much should you be willing to pay to play the game uncapped? And which is another interesting question. And we sort of came up with numbers of 10 to $50,000, you know, which would be the utility, the, um, the expected, the, the dollar value of the expected utility of the game. Yeah. Uh, so, unca- you know, uncapped, it's worth a lot. But as I say, I think uncapped, uh, you know, people would probably not play it, you know, Kelly all the way because playing it Kelly all the way, you know, you get to a point where you've got a lot of money in the game and you might not really want to bet 20% on a 60-40 flip, you know, when you've got five million dollars in the game you might not be willing to put a million dollars on the line for your bet.
0: <laughs> right. Of course. Can you, right? can you go into sort of the utility aspect of it? Cause I'm thinking in my, my head, if I, you know, had, um, I don't know, let's say I had Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg in a room and they were feeling very friendly and they said, look, you can play this game uncapped. Uh, we'll put a smart contract in place. So whatever the number is at the end of, of the time you want to play and you press finish that will be automatically sent to your account. And I was pretty comfortable that I was going to be paid in that situation. Can you just sort of explain a little bit about the utility and what exactly that means? Because if <clears throat> if it was a, I guess, a restricted scenario where the, the expected value was 3 million, obviously the utility is going to be a lot less than that. And there's other factors that go into it. Like, you know, is this all the money you have in the world? And uh, are you going to get paid and things like that? But what if there was a scenario where it was you know, Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg allowing me to play and, and there was a smart contract where they couldn't necessarily opt out and I could get that money in my account. What's sort of the utility in that sort of crazy scenario?
1: Right. So so yeah, in the in the scenario where um, the money that you have in the game is is all of your money. So you've you know so maybe you know you've gotten to a point where you've you know where you've got uh, several million dollars, you know, in the game, whatever, and and, and that's everything that you've got. And you're not worried about getting uh, paid off. So then it becomes a question of your personal degree of risk aversion. Um, and so it becomes a question of what's your uh, you know, personal utility function. And uh, Kelly is, um, uh, the Kelly criterion is consistent with an investor having log utility. So that means that um, they value different levels of wealth equal to the natural log of, of that wealth. Most people, uh, most uh, observers uh, believe that, that that most people are much more risk averse than, um, than Kelly, than, than log utility, I should say. And so, again, you know, imagine that you're in this scenario where you've got somehow you've worked your way up to five million dollars. You've got five million dollars of bankroll. It's all the money that you have and you can bet as much of it as you want on the 60-40 flip. You know, I think that very few people would say, all right, I'm going to bet a million dollars on the 60-40 flip, you know, that, that, which would be the Kelly bet, the 20% of 5 million. And I think that, uh, you know, what you would find is that people would be more thinking of betting half a million dollars or half Kelly or, um, you know, $350,000, you know, a third of Kelly, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it, you know, but it's 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 really you no, know, it's really down to personal preferences and kind of thinking it through. I mean the the thing that's so interesting about playing the game and and, and is what does it feel like? And so your sports betters, right? These these guys that you you know, the um you know, people that are playing a game where they think they have a fifty three percent chance of winning, um, you know, it's even more extreme in those cases. But you know, when you're flipping a sixty forty coin It is really surprising how random that baby feels. I mean, you know, you think that it's like so if you and so another experiment that we did more recently is we asked people this question. We said, and I don't know if you if you've read this piece or not that we did. We asked people, we said, imagine that uh, that you're presented with two coins, one of them has a 60% chance of landing on heads and a 40% on tails. And the other coin is a fair coin, but you don't know which one is which. You don't know, you're presented with these two coins and and you need to identify which one is which by flipping both of them. How many times would you request to see both coins flipped so that you would be 95% confident of identifying the biased from the unbiased one? And have have you have you read that one, Jake? That that piece that we wrote, or
0: um... I I have it saved, and I'm going to read it in the next couple of days. I'm just okay. thinking in my head if I was yeah, okay. So you so
1: you can so you can give us kind of an unbiased answer to that to that question. And what I'll tell you before you answer it is that people guess way way too low a number of flips. People feel like we would get people telling us six flips would be enough, ten flips would be enough. You know that if I could flip both coins ten times, the 60-40 coin and the 50-50 coin, that ten fl- after ten flips, I would be pretty comfortable identifying the biased one from the unbiased one. And I think that you know, with a moment's reflection, you can see how that's crazy, right? I mean, there's no way that ten flips is enough. You know, it's a lot. It's going to take a lot more than ten flips, but people's intuition I mean people would tell us six flips you know we, we got a lot of people say it would be six flips and then they might think about it more and say, "Oh, sorry that was way too low of an answer but that was after they pressed send and we told them the answer <laughs> so so I think that's one of the most you know to me that's one of the most interesting parts of this experiment is is living through is getting a simulated experience of what it's like to bet on a 60/40 coin and it just you know like the chances that you get three tails in a row and, and lose a lot of your wealth cuz remember if you get three tails in a row and you're betting 20% of your wealth on each flip right um, you're down to you're down to you've lost half your money
0: yeah i've heard right? you i've heard you touch on this in the past so we've spoken about sort of kelly at 20% going lower and why you know 8 10 12 15% might be a bit more optimal uh, for preserving your wealth, I guess, and having a little bit of security. What about when you go up towards thirty, forty, even fifty percent of your wealth, and, and betting that much of your bankroll on the coin? Can you talk us through sort of what what are some of the outcomes that happen when you get up to those higher numbers, up towards fifty percent?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, sorry, just to close on, because uh, I think I left uh, our listeners hanging on how many <laughs> flips, uh, how many flips you would need. I think the number is like 140. It's crazy, or 120. I have to okay. look at up. Okay, I was paper. thinking
0: like maybe if I flipped it 20 times, I was thinking, well, if I flip it 20, would I get 12 and 8? Maybe not. Actually, maybe I would need like 30 or 40 or 50. So I'm not even close.
1: Yeah, it's 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 just a human. It's our it's a human uh, bias. It's just a bias in our heads that we need. Uh, you know that we just can't accept. We can't accept that. That the truth isn't revealed in a small number of outcomes, that we want the story, we want the story to be told to us without having to wait a hundred years. <laughs> so yeah, it's over, it's over a hundred flips in the case that I gave you. Um, I think what you're referring to in this other case about, or this other question about, you know, as, as you're increasing your, uh, the percentage that you're betting, right, is this, is this aspect of when you're, when you're betting, uh, some fraction of your wealth, that winning three times and losing three times leaves you worse off, right? So, you know, if you're betting 50% of your wealth on something and you win and lose, right, you're down at 75, you've gone from 100 to 75, right? Because you go from 100 to uh, 150 because you won. And then when you lose, you go from 150 down to 75, and it doesn't take too many times of winning and losing, winning and losing, winning and losing before you basically have wiped out 99% of your wealth if you're betting 50% on each flip. And so um, these distributions get very, very skewed. The um the median, the median of the distribution uh keeps going down even as the uh mean of the distribution uh goes up. So you know think about if you're flipping a fair coin, there's a 50/50 coin, you know, then any any flipping strategy that you have, uh, your expected value is your starting value. So if you have $100, you can bet it any way you want on a fair coin and your expected uh, end value is $100. But if you if you flip 50% of your wealth on each if you bet 50% of your wealth on each flip of that 50/50 coin, then then your median wealth your median wealth is going to go to zero, so right because of this whole win lose win lose thing that's that's where your your most likely value of your wealth is going to be down at zero and but the expected value is still at a hundred, so that means that you know you've got a small number of cases where um your wealth is a million dollars or whatever um and it averages out to a hundred but the most the most likely outcome for your wealth is you're down close to zero.
0: That's eye opening, isn't it? That seems like, for me who hasn't studied this in depth, it seems crazy. You, you're basically, I guess, you're saying that the chances of getting a really high amount is lower compared to the median, right? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. The chance of getting a really high amount. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's 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 um, it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And that uh, is
0: bizarre. Just thinking yeah. about it, sort of if you had 30 seconds to think about it and give an answer, if you want to talk about what's the median, I guess, expectation for a 50-50 coin versus a 60-40 coin, it's hard in your brain to sort of compute that quickly yeah. and say, okay, I think that's what's going to happen. That's yeah. bizarre, yeah. but I guess that's yeah. just, it's incredible. I guess that's sort of talk, we can talk about over betting and I guess bet sizing and things like that. It gets um, pretty problematic. And I was sort of thinking about it. How how on earth do people lose Betting long-term if they've got 60% sort of tips in their back pocket or, or they're handicapping a 60% it's quite easy to, to lose all of your money
1: yeah yeah no it's 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 surprising right because it's kind of the in some ways the easiest you know that, that you would think that the hard thing is finding the 60 40 coin and the easy thing is figuring out how much to bet um, you know I think that um, you know you could. You could sort of flip it around and say, actually, you know, there are, well, there are lots of things that are more like, you know, there aren't, there aren't a lot of opportunities to make 60, 40 bets many times a year, but you can do a 60, 40 bet once a year. That's just probably investing in the stock market is generally a 60, 40 bet once a year. And, and, um, and actually, but getting the, getting your bet size correct or what's appropriate for you is really difficult, you know, and so like if you, you know, if you read investing, You know, if you you read about investing advice, you know, telling people what to do, uh, there's a lot of uh, advice out there about, you know, uh, keep your costs low and, you know, be tax efficient and all of that. But there's very little that's said about, you know, what's the right amount of risk that you should be taking? How much money should you have in the stock market? And um, because and, and the reason for that is because it's kind of a personal and difficult um, thing for people to get their heads around so there's like you know it's, it, it doesn't have such a uh, uh, an easy answer for people and, and it's highly personalized.
0: Yeah absolutely so were there any sort of implications or did anything jump out at you or, or your team when you were doing this or was it as simple as look you just got to stop and, and think about things a little bit certainly when it comes to managing your bankroll and investing your money and, and I guess you know sort of money management overall was there any sort of real life sort of strategies or implementations that people can think about? Or was it just, you know, you've got to really carefully study, uh, I guess, the situation and what you're getting yourself into?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the uh, the big, I think the big implication of of this is that people need to spend more time thinking about how much they should put at risk rather than what they should buy you know that that uh, when it comes to investing anyway that 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 balance is too much the the balance is too far skewed to figuring out what are the good opportunities rather than you know putting putting time into carefully thinking about how much of those things should i want to own and um, you know and i think the other thing that's kind of come out of this is this related bit of research of just how difficult it is to identify small edges you know so you know that in the context of sports betting right I mean if you've got a 52 percent edge in your sports betting how long does it take you to decide you know a how long would it take you to decide that you do have a 52 percent edge you know how many bets would you need to make to decide that and I think the answer to that is really in the thousands you know you would need to make thousands of bets you know that if you did have, you know that if you were trying to, if you were trying to uh, identify a sports better who had a 52% edge from another one who had, say, zero edge, um, you know you would need to observe thousands of bets from the two of them in order to identify which was which. Um, you know just as you need over a hundred to identify a 60-40 coin versus a 50-50. And I think that's really interesting because I think that people just feel like you know we can use much shorter track records or much shorter you know that that much shorter track records will give us enough comfort in 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 uh, identifying um, the gems the gems from the uh you know from the rocks
0: yeah absolutely and I do ask a lot of the guests about how they go about calculating their edge if they are using a percentage of their bank for their bets and things like that and I guess a lot of the answers are that it's sort of feel and it's you know, using your experience and having that sort of training over the years, which I guess is the only answer, and it might be a good answer but I guess based on what you 've said, certainly, and also other sort of behavioral finance and economic principles that are out there with regards to sort of overstating how good you might be in certain circumstances it's probably very easy to get in trouble when you 're trying to calculate what your edge certainly might be in in certain circumstances and if if it takes hundreds or thousands of examples to get a good grasp on what that might be you can certainly get into trouble very quickly
1: yep Yep. agreed
0: so you mentioned ed thorpe in your paper can you just maybe touch on uh, what interaction you had with him and and what he said about the the experiment in general because i know he's a he's a rock star when it comes to obviously his book about card counting and his time in investing and i guess just in general so do you want to just touch on what ed had to say about all of this well
1: I mean we were we were you know very very pleased that uh, that Ed took a look at it my uh, co-researcher Rich Dewey um you know has a has a nice relationship with Ed um has met with him a few times and uh you know we uh, and Ed uh was happy for us to use a quote that he sent us in an email where he said that he felt that um that this kind of that our that our research and the kind of experiment that we did should be part of The training for anybody that's uh, serious about investing or gambling so he he, I think he liked what we did you know obviously um, you know he's written the book um, (laughs) along with other of his friends and colleagues they've written the book on on this topic and uh, but he he thought that we had an interesting um, you know and worthwhile perspective on it so yeah we were super pleased uh, that 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 he liked what we did
0: yeah, that's 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 great. He is a he is a superstar in the area, so it's I guess it's very cool when you can have someone like that give you the thumbs up. It would be remiss of me not to ask one or two questions about investing and I'm certainly no expert, but I've read some of your work and I found it interesting some of the topics you were writing about. So forgive my inadequacies when it comes to the knowledge in this area, but two brief and quick questions for you about investing. And obviously, it's not financial advice, and the listeners sort of know this when we talk to all of our guests. It's uh, it's just sort of their thoughts and theories and ideas. There's a lot of discussion here in the U.S. about a debt crisis and a potential recession and things like that. I saw you wrote about it recently uh, about waiting for a, I guess, market correction or whatever the right terminology is. Do you want to briefly summarize sort uh, of your thoughts on this area?
1: Well, uh, you know, I guess uh, the, the short note that we wrote recently... Um, was just trying to lay out what the historical record was and not to we, we were very tried to be very explicit about saying that, you know, we don't think that history predicts the future, but we thought it's important. It's, it's even more the case that not history, <laughs> that things that didn't happen <laughs> are not going to be very predictive either. So, you know, that that. Uh, you know, that to say that history doesn't predict the future doesn't mean that not history <laughs> predicts the future. I mean, not history, you know, doesn't predict the future either. <laughs> so that was kind of where we were we were coming from, because we had the impression that a lot of people have this idea that um, when the market is expensive on a our main valuation type metrics, like price earnings, that uh, corrections tend to come frequently and save investors or, or uh, wind up give, making investors better off And so, you know, in in general, my my view is that that in the short term, it's very hard to predict what the stock market's going to do or asset prices in general in the short term, in the one month, in the one year type of region. Um, However, in the longer term, uh, in the very long term, I think that it's it's uh, somewhat easier to predict returns or or the the error around predictions tends to be less. So, you know, if you're looking at a. uh, at a 30-year bond and you look at it to a 30-year horizon well the return is going to be pretty close to its yield and similarly if you look at the stock market and you think about a 30-year return you know the 30-year return is probably going to be somewhat related to the earnings yield uh, the uh, the earnings yield of the stock market at the beginning and um, you know and and historically we don't have a lot of data but you know that that seems to be supported by history also that uh, you know if you're if you're buying companies that have uh, uh, an 8% earnings yield that um, over the long term, you're likely to make something along the lines of 8%. And, you know, as I say, that's, uh, you know, in the very long term. Now, you know, investors want to feel that they're doing well in the short term. And unfortunately, that's just really, really difficult. But, um, you know, if we look at the long term, we have a, a better chance of, of uh, getting a handle on expected returns, and uh, and that can drive our investing decisions. So today, the yes, I mean the markets are very frothy. The U.S. market's gone up a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot of signs that that people take away uh, or parallels with periods in the past that um, came before big sell-offs in the market. But you know, my feeling is that that could well be the case. But I think it's very hard to know, and I would rather try to focus more on the long-term and and recognizing that long-term expected returns of the stock market right now are much lower than they've been at other times leads me to want to hold less equities but it doesn't lead me to want to hold zero equities or to be short equities which I think is what you would get if you actually thought the expected return was zero or negative so when when PEs are high Expected returns tend to be lower, but but probably still positive over the long term. And the short term is very hard to predict.
0: I really appreciate that insight, and I I'm really grateful for your time. One last question: behavioral finance aspects that we've been well, we haven't necessarily touched on too much, but are in play when it comes to you know these sorts of areas that we're talking about, whether it is the betting side, investing side. I know a lot of us are interested in you know resources and i guess different books to read or or different ideas that they can use that are utilized in different areas of investing or trading or you know the stock market whether it is horse racing sports betting can you sort of point uh people who are interested in trying to find out more information about some of the behavioral finance or economics aspects that are in play
1: well i mean there's so much great stuff that's that's uh that's written and um you know, compiled in, in different ways. I mean, books by by Thaler, by um, I mean, there's so, well, I mean, there's just there's so much out there. It'd be hard to uh, think about where to begin. I mean, I you know, I see a lot of copies of Thinking Fast and Slow, Kahneman's uh, um, opus, out there. I mean, I think any any of these books is a great starting point, And then you know, there's references throughout, and uh, you know, and there's a huge amount of overlap. It's a, you know, it's a fascinating field. And there's a huge amount of overlap, you know, between, uh, different books. So I think, you know, you sort of just dive into one of them and, um, you know, there's so many great ones out there and, and, uh, you know, and that would, you know, that's, that's a really great, you know, that's more, more than a starting point in terms of understanding all these things and seeing how they might apply. So I, I guess the idea would be to go with a more recent book, um, you know, so that, it's covering, you know, all the latest research. So as I say, you know, something like Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow or others. And, you know, the the researchers themselves have written a lot of these books, you know, as I say, failure or whatever. And so it's kind of nice to read the stuff in their voice rather than reading some of the books that have written more by journalists, um, which also are great. But, you know, since the, since the original researchers have written some books, you might as well start with those.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I came across Misbehaving by Thaler. And then I guess the good thing these days is once you buy a book on Amazon, it tells you another hundred books that you should be buying as well. So I think it's getting a start in with Thinking Fast and Slow or Misbehaving or one of those yeah, preeminent yeah, I think,
1: books. Yeah, and probably just, you know, a book or two is all you need, uh, you know, because they, they they overlap so much. I mean, I would say, you know, that uh, one or two books and you'll be you know, well on your way and then can sort of specialize into things that are of particular interest.
0: Victor, thank you very much for your time. Before I let you go, do you want to just mention, Alm? Uh, and I guess there's some great sort of content on your side. I, I've read some of the, I guess the blog posts you have there and there's some interesting insights, uh, for certainly someone like me, who's not day to day involved in the investing and, and this trading side. So do you want to just, uh, touch on that and where people can find your work?
1: Sure. Yeah, uh, elmfunds.com is our website, and um, you know we try to provide uh, short and uh, you know short pieces on investing that um, that don't really talk about current markets, but more about you know just different different ideas in in uh, in investing. So yeah, I mean check out our site. We uh, we help people with their savings um, you know in a in what we think is a sensible is a sensible approach to investing low-cost and uh, and and very secure we manage separately managed accounts at Fidelity so our investors open an account at Fidelity we help them to do that and then we manage it there but it's their account it's not commingled we also have some funds that we manage as well you know my my email address is there on the website it's easy to contact us if you want more information or presentations or whatever so yeah elmfunds.com and yeah thank you that's uh kind of you to to mention our our site it's uh you know we're very interested in in uh, in research so it's been a pleasure you know being on this phone call and, and and talking about ideas and uh you know not so much our business but thanks for asking about our business too
0: It's been a great pleasure to chat, Victor. Many thanks again for your time. And um, I look forward to more of your research and more of your papers and and getting a better understanding for myself. So I'm sure the listeners think much the same. So, uh, yeah, many thanks again.
1: All right. Thanks, Jake. Take care.